You've seen the big plays. Jaron stepping to his right, looking, looking, stopping, firing, end zone, touchdown! You've heard what the playmakers and coaches have had to say. Up for a three. Got it! But now it's time to go behind the mic with BYU Sports Broadcasters to get their distinctive take on the games. Oh, what an aggressive play! This is Behind the Mic with host Cleon Wall. On today's show, we talk about loss, redemption, and reconciliation. A BYU journalism documentary captures this theme perfectly, and we'll discuss that later in the episode. But first, BYU's football team currently lives in the land of the loss, or should I say, land of the losses. Their losing streak stands at four right now, and they're hoping for some redemption against Boise State. So I thought I would talk to someone who experienced a few losing streaks in his Cougar career, and that's BYU Sports Network sideline reporter Mitch Jurgens. All right, so Mitch, BYU is on a four-game losing streak. You know what that feels like. You were on the Cougar team. You were on two different Cougar teams that lost four in a row. Once in 2010, and then in 2014, you were on a team that lost four in a row. Funny enough, you won the first four games of the season and then lost four games in a row. Losing one yeah. game is tough, but you can move on and, and rebound after one loss. But what happens to a player's psyche when the losing compounds and it keeps happening week after week? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. Um, I, I think one of the biggest one of the biggest things is, is I even look back to 2014. It feels like it's been so long um, since that time. But um, yeah, when you start getting in a rut like that, I think I think the biggest concern is you don't want players to start to believe that, oh, wow, are we really, you know, this bad of a team or we can't find a way to win? Is this, um, you know, players and and teams are going to have a bad game every once in a while where maybe they don't come on top on the scoreboard. But uh, when it starts happening repeatedly, the, the worry and the concern is that this becomes a like a belief, an inner belief that this team is not capable of getting back on top and, and that there are some some real issues to fix to that's preventing this team from winning. And so um, as, as I look back to 2014, you know, uh, we had uh, the reason that I guess that losing streak started was, you know, Taysom Hill goes down in the Utah State game. I think everybody was pretty shocked that that happened. Um, it just, you know, because hey, Taysom was on a on a Heisman type um, a Heisman like uh, season that year where just absolutely dominating against UConn um, and then went to Texas, Houston, he had a killer game, uh, Virginia as well. And so this was just a really uh, riding on the four and O kind of on, on Taysom's coattail. And then the the injury just came as a shock and, and it kind of that, that, that week that loss to Utah state was a bit of a, um, I think we just didn't believe it, uh, won the loss, but also just losing Taysom. Um, they just, just never could rebound, even though we played some pretty competitive football um, the next couple of games and just couldn't manage to find a way on top. But it truly does just make players look internally like, you know, you've got to get rid of any self-belief that this team isn't capable of winning and that this the losing streak is just because we're all of a sudden not a good football team anymore. And you can't have that belief uh, for those players. So yes, it's, it's definitely tough, but uh, you, you can, you can snap out of it. Um, it, it it's going to take quite a bit though. You mentioned the loss of Taysom Hill in that game at Utah state, which was the start of the losing streak, but there were other, there were injuries to other players. I should say during that losing streak too. Is it hard not to uh, blame mounting losses to injuries? Um, as a player, as a player, it's, um, 
you definitely, I don't think I ever reverted back to blaming losing streaks or losses on losing players Um, at the time. And I'll even say it to this day, like Christian Stewart stepped in. Um, Obviously he wasn't Taysom Hill, but Christian Stewart was a very capable and and incredible quarterback who had a fabulous arm and brilliant mind. Um, It was just, you know, jumping in with not as much experience. And, um, but we, we trusted and believed in, in Christian Stewart, even through that losing streak. And that's what I think helped us actually bounce back and win the final four games of the, of the uh, season that year, we ended up losing the, the, the bowl game that year, but um, to bounce back and go on another four game winning streak, I think it was the belief um, and trust that we had behind Christian Stewart. Um, and so, yeah, again, to answer your question, like, no, it, it, you definitely don't start blaming players um, because I mean, this team, the, you know, the current um, or this current BYU team, but even when I played back in 2014, I mean, uh, you, you, you do, you believe in the players that you have. And if you don't, um, I think that's that's a big issue, but that wasn't the case uh, when I played back in 2014. We'll get back to Christian Stewart in a moment. Uh, our current quarterback for BYU, Jaron Hall, was asked this week if, it, if this has been the toughest time for him to be a leader on this football team. I'm not a challenge uh, opportunity, though. Um, you know, finding finding ways to keep people positive, keep yourself positive. Really, you know, as you know, as a leader, a lot of times you can take stuff on yourself. Um, you can allow a lot of stuff to become burdensome. So for me personally, to stay positive and then just to, to find ways to look outward, see the guys that need need to be re- reached out to, see the guys that need more belief in themselves, um, to, to kind of strike that um, belief within them. Um, and in return, it kind of does the same for me. What did the coaches and leadership on that team back in 2014 do to keep you guys afloat and unified? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's just consistent consistent efforts um, because every game brings its different subset of challenges. Um, Every single day of practice is a new opportunity to prove yourself. And, and if, if leaders start to get relaxed in their efforts there, whether that's from coaches or players, um, you know, you can slip into um, just a level of complacency that you don't want. And so, um, it's, it's absolutely critical. And I think the most critical piece of that is just these leaders displaying a consistent effort to motivate, to encourage, and to display their support for where the program is going. And, and as I look back in 2014, I mean, um, you know, Christian Stewart was even one of those guys coming in and, and saying like, I'm not going to crunch just because we've lost a few games and, and I've never really been in this position before, but, um, displaying his leadership and, um, and, uh, encouragement to go out and treat every every game as a new opportunity to prove yourself um, and with the understanding that every game is also a very winnable game. I'm not trying to depress people as we think about back to 2014 during that losing streak, nor do you, but you lost to UCF, then Nevada, and then Boise State after losing to USU. The Broncos scored 55 points in that final loss of that losing streak. When that happened, you lose by 25 in that game. So the offense shows a little bit of light, but you're giving up 55 points in that game. Did all the talk of let's stay unified and, you know, let's still have hope. Did it did it kind of start to wane a little bit or were these losses just starting to wear on you after a while? Um, that, that's a that's a good question. It's hard to remember, you know, all the way back to 2014, but um, I don't remember it ever getting to that point. Um Going to Boise, I mean, that year, yeah, we played at Albertson Stadium. Um, we knew it was going to be a tough environment. And 
yeah, offensively, they had a really good game and it was hard for our defense to, to stop them. But looking at the schedule, the upcoming games, um, Middle Tennessee, I'm, I'm looking at the 2014 schedule right now, UNLV, Savannah State. I mean, those were clear opportunities for BYU to get back on track um, is just kind of the level of competition there. And so um, I, I don't think it was ever in question, like, look, this winning streak we can't get out of this winning streak because we we knew at that time if you could get through Boise State, unfortunately, that was a loss. But um, this team's going to get back on track and can build some momentum heading into the end of the year against Cal. Um, Jared Goff was the quarterback at that time, I believe. And um, and so, uh, you know, being able to just look a week in advance and knowing whatever the outcome is in this game, like we're going to get back on track. And, and that was, it was a tough game against Boise. And, uh, but no, I, I wouldn't say that we had any like a, or hint of the team separating because uh, we knew um, or because of the, the way that we lost in that game. So you beat middle Tennessee state the next week, 27, seven, I'm assuming that that's just a feeling of relief. Like, yes, we, we finally were able to break this streak and we're back. We're, we're back to our winning ways. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And all it takes sometimes, it doesn't matter who the opponent is, but you have the concept of the mindset, just win. Find a way to win the game, to get back on track, uh, get people's spirits high and, and uh, you know, not having a ride on the, the, the plane home. Um, learning from a loss, it's a lot easier to learn from a win. And that was one of those situations. Like, look, it doesn't matter how we win, just, just get back in the win column and, and then we can start to build from there again. You finished the season on a four-game winning streak, including uh, a win over Cal, which you uh, mentioned that you played them. You caught seven passes for 107 yards and two touchdowns in that game. What do you think you learned when you look back at that whole season? What do you think you learned from that experience of winning four in a row, losing four in a row, and then winning four in a row at the end of the season? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I would um, uh, I would say, I mean, you're going to go through adversity in a season it may not look the way that you want it to look um but as as long as you know you attack that adversity with um you know a collective team effort um you're going to give your best opportunity to um to come out on top and, and put together a winning schedule um i you know i don't i don't remember every single game um of that season to go down to the specifics but i do remember that heading into that cal game um, this was, uh, if, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, um, Cal was also, they were, I think they were five and six at the time. So they had to win this game to become bowl eligible. Um, and it was an opportunity for us to just come together and make a statement against a, a PAC 12 team that was, um, that, that had a good brand on themselves and, and that entire game, um, it was, I mean, it was a battle. The defense stepped up when they needed to step up. The offense, I want to say Christian Stewart threw for 400 plus yards in that game. And um, it was just really cool to see um, the team rally together and come up with a big win um, in a game like that on the road uh, after everything that we had gone through that entire season, losing players to injury, um, key, you know, key players, key captains um, that, that we didn't have for the full season. So, um, I, I think just being able to take adversity head on and collectively 
come together as a team can do wonders for um, an organization that's that's trying to get back on top. I was hoping, uh, Mitch, that you would tell me after that last game that you caught those two touchdown passes and had 107 receiving yards that what you really learned from that season was that Christian Stewart and the coaches should have thrown you the ball more, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's, I you know, as a receiver, you always want the ball. Um, but I mean, that was, that was a big game for me and, and kind of a turning point for my confidence and, um, and my, the rest of my career at BYU is up until that point, I was, I was used pretty sporadically throughout the season. Um, but against Cal, like having a good game like that, being trusted and, and, um, it was, it was a good opportunity for me to just build on my confidence and, and recognizing, look, I can, I can compete with anybody and uh, throw me into any situation and, and I'll do my best to perform. And, um, so yeah, it was, a it, it was, a, it was a good experience for me. Going back to this year's team, Jaron Hall was asked if a team only meeting would help this current squad. Again, not, not trying to make too big of a deal out of it. We just got to find something else to spark us. You know, there's, there's no, there's no meeting. There's no speech that can, that can get you out of the situation that we're in right now. And we've learned that after a couple of weeks. So we just got to, we got to find a way just to get through this. Is he onto something? Did you ever have anything like that? Do you think team only meetings work? Um, I think they can. Um, but again, and, and I would second what, what Jaron said there is it's, you know, just a team only meeting isn't going to be the fix, right? Because it's what we do with what's said in the meeting. Um, sometimes team only meetings can help because, you know, put coaches aside and people can just truly get off their chest what they want to get off their chest. And um, and whatever that is, uh, you know, sometimes you just need need time to vent. And and once you get that off, then it's like, look, we can break it down, start over and, and really regroup. Um, but yeah, what I would say is that it totally depends on what we do in as a result of those meetings. Um, as we look at the the this BYU team this year, um, one of the I think biggest issues is just the lack of execution um, on an individual basis. Right, players not winning their one on one matchups, uh, players whether it's missing assignments that are open up big plays uh, for opposing offenses. Um, it, it comes down to simple execution. And, and in my mind, that's a mindset thing. You can do everything right, no matter how talented you are um, uh, in practice. How well do you prepare to put yourself in a game situation so that you can execute the way that you're supposed to? And um, and that comes down to heart, drive, effort. And I think a lot of their woes that they've been um they've been up against this season can be fixed if they simply execute on the individual level. And so if that resonates more in a team only meeting where with no coach or with no, um, uh, with no coaches in the meeting room where they can truly, you know, truly speak directly. And it's like, look, call every player, every individual player to action to say, look, it's up to you internally to fix this and uh, to do your job and, and execute at a level that we need for this D1 BYU football program, then, um, then yeah, I encourage that. But um, it's, it's in my mind, it's completely what, what they do as a result of whatever meeting or, or pep talk they have. You talked about a spark or we talked about a spark. Is that the spark they need then just doing their, you know, as Kalani might say, doing their one eleventh, just executing what they can do is, is that going to be the sparkers or is there something else that you think can help this team to get that victory and get this monkey off their back? Yeah, I think that's part of it uh, because, you know, in reality, not one player is going to be able to carry an offense or a defense. And if you try and do too much, that's when a lot of times 
people get into trouble, right? Um, defensive players trying to, you can't fit in three gaps at one time. You can only fit in one. And so if you do your job and everybody else does theirs and collectively, collectively as a group, um, you're going to put yourself in a position to, um, sick or to execute at the highest level. Uh, with that said, one thing I'd, I would add on to that is, um, you do need a playmaker, um, whether that's on the offensive side, um, or defensive side, I think, uh, on the defense, um, I think that could be even more crucial on their side of the ball is having somebody step up. And, you know, I go back to my playing days and uh, how fun it was to play with a guy like Kainakua, who was a ball hawk, but overall just an, a playmaker, whatever he was, wherever, whatever situation he was in, he found a way to make a game changing play. And I feel like that's what BYU is lacking right now is, is on defense. Who is that guy that can turn a game around with one play, you know, an extra effort play, a, an interception, a turnover, a forced fumble. Um, there isn't that person that I see as kind of that go-to playmaker who steps up in big moments. And so in addition to doing your 111th, having somebody on either side of the ball just step up and be that playmaker. Mitchell Jurgens, he is our sideline reporter on the BYU Sports Network. Thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, thanks, Cleon. Coming up next, the story behind BYU Journalism's documentary featuring the University of Wyoming's Black 14. Welcome back to Behind the Mic's episode about loss, redemption, and reconciliation. A group of Wyoming football players lost their right to play back in 1969. They wanted to protest BYU and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints since black people could not receive the priesthood in the church. Cowboys head coach Lloyd Eaton kicked John Griffin and 13 other teammates off the football team for their peaceful protest. All we were doing is asking to wear armbands. Had he said no we would not have worn those armbands. And I knew then, we're done. Media outlets have chronicled the Black 14's experience in the past, but the BYU Journalism Department gave it a fresh take in a new documentary. I think the biggest thing that we did that others didn't was tell the story of what's going on now. This is student journalist Elizabeth Alstrom. Their story in 1969 it has been told, and, and some of the details were a little fuzzy on that, so we were able to continue and retell their story the way they wanted it to be told. Um, but we were able to show that this isn't something that just happened back then. It's a continual progressing story that they're still striving to make an impact today. One of our takeaways for that day was we were not going to let this incident define us for the rest of our lives. Fifty years after they were kicked off the team, the University of Wyoming apologized to members of the Black 14 and welcomed them back to campus. The former Cowboy football players also started an initiative to help those desperately in need of food. They also formed a partnership with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to distribute food to the communities they lived in. Elizabeth Alstrom says it all started with Black 14 member Mel Hamilton. He's got such a large personality and such an amazing outlook on life. He instigated this contact because when they all came back together about 50 years after the incident, they realized they wanted to do something. They wanted to make a change. And his son actually had married a member of the church um, and later became a member himself. And so his son now is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When he heard that his father and the men that he was with, they wanted to do something, he was like, well, I know some great people. And so from there, Mel's like, 
you know what? I didn't ever see myself at this point, but it's definitely where this is supposed to go. And so he was willing to reach out and to mend those fences. And he really had an amazing outlook on, you know, this was in the past. Mending those fences included Hamilton taking a trip to Salt Lake City, Utah to visit church headquarters. Here is fellow journalist Abby Gunderson. And they asked Elder Eskiford Nielsen of the 70 to host. And so those two got connected. They started um, talking. They became good friends. And um, I think that's kind of where everything started was the relationship between Mel Hamilton and Elder Nielsen. And they were able to connect. And at one point, um, Mel told Elder Nielsen about, you know, the philanthropy and all the things they were trying to do. And at the time, the Black 14, their main initiative was, you know, buy a shirt, feed a family. So you bought a Black 14 shirt and every shirt would pay for a meal for a family. And so um, Elder Nielsen said, well, why don't we why don't we see if we can help you out with that? And um, offered for the church to send a truckload of food instead of just selling a T-shirt and getting a meal. And so I think that relationship is really where things started taking off and developing. Elder S. Gifford Nielsen shared a bond with Mel Hamilton since they both played college football, but their relationship went further than that. And he goes, why are you being so nice to us? And I said, because we love the Lord and we love our neighbor. And Mel, you're my neighbor. I love you. Alstrom wishes one of Elder Nielsen's stories could have made the film's final cut. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and being alive during the time when um, blacks weren't allowed to advance in the church and receive the priesthood, he really, he struggled for years playing in the NFL, playing um, professional sports and seeing these men, you know, not understanding why that was. Um, and he, he tells of a story when um, he was sitting in the locker room before an NFL game. For the, uh, He was the quarterback for the Oilers at the time. And over the loudspeaker in the locker room, they announced that the church is going to allow blacks to hold the priesthood. And to see his emotion and his gratitude as he remembers that story so clearly 40, 50 years later, um, it really shows how... It was a trial for members of the church back then as well. Like, they wanted their brothers and sisters, even if they had a different skin color, to be able to receive the same blessings. Alstrom Gunderson and Shiler Johnson were joined by other students in spreading out across the U.S. to interview anyone involved in the food donations. Alstrom said that included the people who were receiving the food that they needed to survive. Yeah, I think it was important because it told the full story. These people, the Black 14... They've gone through their sets of challenges and their trials, but these people who need food and who um, are desperate for those donations at times, they have whole set, a different set of challenges and, and trials they go through um, almost on a more daily basis. And so seeing that love and compassion and empathy continues on um, from trial to trial and that as human beings, we're all able to gather a fuller understanding of what it means to serve and love one another really is is the key to this story. We were hard on food and everything. Cause I didn't thought nobody cared for me like that. And that really made me feel so good inside. For Shiler Johnson, it was an honor to interview the members of the Black 14, but she was also a bit nervous. Up until this point, you know, we've we've all done stories for the Daily Universe and here and there done other stories. But I think like for me especially, this was one of my you know the 
one of the biggest stories I've ever worked on. Uh, one of the most important stories, in my opinion. Like it, it wasn't just a, let me call this person and get a, get a quote, but we were flying to where these men lived and worked and their communities to interview them about something so, you know, so, uh, so tender and so emotional. You know, very, it's a very emotional topic, very emotion, emotionally filled. So it was, it was very intimidating. How did they feel about it when, I, once it was all done? I mean, overall, I feel like they were really pleased. You know, there were lots of smiles, a lot of tears. Um, I think something that they were all very impressed with um, and just happy to see, like, put forward was, like, what's happening now and how they're working with the church. And I think they were just very excited to see that people can now watch them working with the church and seeing the good they do around the country. Yes, Black 14 and Latter-day Saints, I don't know if we'll ever get together like this. Do you think it would have been ever predicted 50 years ago that we'd be standing <laughs> here? I'm sure it wouldn't. Wait, with smiles <laughs> on our face. <laughs> and, and now I feel like i got a new friend. Yeah. I, 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 I love you will. both. Abby Gunderson had never heard the story of the Black 14 until she volunteered to help produce the film. After meeting the men involved, she wanted to get their story right. It felt like this like mission, this like mantle that we had taken on to be able to tell these men's stories and um, that in and of itself was really impactful just understanding that this was a really um, important responsibility that we held but then at the very end um, we got to be on the field with them when they were being honored at the football game here in Provo and um, I hadn't met Mel or John before because I wasn't on those interviews and um, getting to shake their hands and having them say thank you for telling our story and telling us that we had done a good job and that we had um, we had brought the story to light in a way that they appreciated and that they they felt was they felt was right was so incredible and I think that just kind of put you know tied a bow around everything for me just to feel like okay we did it they approve they liked it I feel like our our mission is complete and so that was that was pretty incredible. The barriers built over how the men were treated in Provo over five decades ago now seem to be torn down. Here again is Shiler Johnson. There was a conversation I had with Mel right before the BYU-Wyoming game, and he was down on the field, and I was up in the student section, and I was looking down and I said, you know, let's play, like, this is awesome, like, let's go, this is so fun to play. And he said, I don't really care who wins tonight. All I want is us to play together. And I, I, I stepped back and I went, wow, like that sentiment, I wish we, you know, applied it more in our daily lives. Like just playing the game together. It's not about winning. It's not about losing. It's about working together for one common goal. You know, in football, that's entertainment. <laughs> you know, each team's got their, their goal. But, you know, that night, it, it, to me, I didn't, I didn't really care if BYU walked away with a win for, on the football field because we walked away with a win in the fact that we were able to work with the Black 14 um, and just to be able to tell their story and to work with them. It's the most amazing uh, experience I've ever had. Um, and I'm just really grateful that they gave us gave us the opportunity to tell their story um, and to work with them. I feel like you put it in a position to do what you're supposed to do. So I could be sitting here right now telling this story because that story is better than what I did in football or what we did here or what we were. It's what we want to be and where we're going now and how the Latter-day Saints are helping us get there. Thank you, Doc. A big thanks to Elizabeth Alstrom, Abby Gunderson, and Shiler Johnson. You can watch the entire documentary by going to universe.byu.edu 
or by going to the Daily Universe's YouTube page. Behind the Mic is a production of BYU Radio.